Well, hello, everybody, and to those of you joining us on live stream, welcome. Really glad that you're with us tonight. If you're new and you don't know me, my name's Steve. I'm the lead pastor here. And as Abby mentioned in her welcome, uh, we hope the only thing you walk away with tonight is seeing Jesus. So whether you consider yourself a skeptical person, if you've been in the church for a long time, we don't want you to see us. We want you to see uh, King Jesus, and hopefully that'll come out as we dive into God's Word tonight. And so... um, so we are continuing in Second Samuel, looking at the gospel in the life of David. And as we saw last week, one of the most common titles that Jesus is referred to in the New Testament isn't son of David or isn't son of Abraham or son of Moses, but it's son of David. And one of the reasons Jesus has called this is because when you see King David at his best, which David has some remarkable incidents uh, he's just a dim pointer to who God is, to who Jesus is. And in this story, we see uh, David's about to crash next week, but now David's at the height of his moral and kingly trajectory. And he shows remarkable love toward this guy, Mephibosheth. And this is a helpful passage for us, uh, because in our moment today, at least in America, one of the loudest contradictions that we see is with the practice of love. And what I mean by that is, on the one hand, I don't think you've had a culture where more often in political slogans and songs and on social media, you read and hear things like, you know, we just have to love and accept everybody. Love is love. So on and so forth. Like, we need, just need to love everybody. You know, we're always talking about love, love, love. Um, I agree. It's one of the most important virtues, right? Uh, but the question is, we have to ask, on the other hand, how are we doing? Right? I mean, look, just look at Twitter. Like, how are we doing with practicing what everybody seems to be preaching? And it's interesting. I've been, this past week, I read through uh, The Coddling of the American Mind by Jonathan Haidt. He's a professor of ethics at NYU. And one of the things he points out, and he, you know, he builds this, he makes a case for it. But in summary, one of the things he says is, one of the unintended consequences of the ways that many of the academic institutions are training students, particularly in the sphere of the humanities, is uh, students are being trained to, especially when they're confronted with somebody who has a different ideology than them or a different belief than them, to respond by, by interpreting the person they're hearing in the least generous way possible. Right? It's when they hear something that is different than their own beliefs or way of doing things, rather than extending charity or trying to use empathy to get into the other person's perspective and hear where they're coming from, it's just, boom, like immediately least generous interpretation and so that's why, that's one of the reasons why in the public square and online, there's so little space for nuance anymore, right? Just as soon as you hear something that you disagree with, you just shut people down, cancel culture, you know, so on and so forth. And so as believers, one of the most powerful ways that we can show other people Jesus and grow in union with Jesus is by being countercultural in how we love other people. And in this episode with Mephibosheth, we see a great example that David gives us on how to do that. So we'll look at this passage. Uh, we'll just look at, th- at it through two, move- two movements. First, we'll look at how does David love Mephibosheth? And then number two, okay, how can we love others in the same way that David loves Mephibosheth here? So number one, how, like what are the ways that David loves Mephibosheth? And then number two, how can we love others in the same way that we see in this passage? All right, so first, number one, what are the ways that David extends love to this guy, Mephibosheth? So, um, in the chapter before this, what we read is the, the kingdom is united, it's at peace, there's justice and equity in the land, it's described. And so David's kind of sitting around, and then he goes in verse 1, Is there anyone left of the house of Saul, the prior king, David's enemy, that I may show him kindness 
for Jonathan's sake. And we know that word kindness is important because anytime you see a word repeated in a passage, you should look out. And this word kindness is repeated three times in just seven verses. So in verse 1, verse 3, verse 7, we see David wants to show, show kindness to somebody in the line of Saul. And this word kindness, you could say, is a, is a feeble translation. Um, because this word kindness is the Hebrew word hesed, which is, it's hard to translate because it's so rich. But hesed is a type of love that, that's binding, that's concentrated, that seeks out, and that always expresses itself through not just feeling, but through action. And hesed is, is such wonderful, incredible love because it's the way that God describes himself. It's like in Exodus 34, for example, when Moses asks, God, I want to see you. God responds with, you want to know who I am? I'm a God of, I'm a God of hesed, of, of covenant love. Okay, so when I set my love on you, I never take it away. It's binding, it's concentrated, and I always express it through action. So that's what David's saying here. I want to extend this hesed to somebody in the line of Saul. And this is nuts. Okay, this is nuts that David wants to do this. So why is it nuts? First, it's nuts because Mephibosheth is an enemy. Okay, so Mephibosheth is in the line of Saul, and what common practice was in this area, you see it in the Bible and other passages, you see it in extra-biblical literature, is when you become king, like step one of a politically and personal prudent thing to do is to purge everybody else in the line of the rival king. Because you don't want anyone to even be like propped up as a rallying point for your, the rival line to come back at you and usurp your throne. It was just, that's what everybody did. And so if David wanted to ensure security, not just for his family, but for his kingdom, the way he would do that is by purging everybody in the line of Saul. And so, and that's why you see Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth show up in um, chapter 7. David says, do not fear. Because Mephibosheth is on his ground. It says he falls on his face in verse 6. Because Mephibosheth knows what David's going to say when he gets called into his court. Is One of the first things he's going to hear is, we have the guillotine prepared out front. You're going to be executed in an hour. That's just what he's expecting. But that's not what David tells him. He says, don't fear, for I'm going to show you hesed for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. So he says, not only am I going to not kill you, but I'm going to heap goodness upon you. So it's like if you screw up, it's an extreme version of if you screw up really bad in your company and your boss calls you in, you know you're going to get fired or reprimanded, but instead you get promoted. It's like, that doesn't make any sense. Okay, but that's what David's doing here. So first, number one, Mephibosheth is an enemy of David, and he wants to show this covenant love to him. Um, number two, the reason it's nuts is because Mephibosheth has nothing to offer David. So look at how Mephibosheth is described. And let's see, where is it? In verse three, the first time he's described, Ziba, the servant of Saul, says, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. Okay, so that's the first way we're introduced to him. And then at the end of this passage, we didn't read it, but in verse 13, where this scene ends, it says, Mephibosheth ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. So the author is communicating by bracketing this episode that Mephibosheth is a cripple. This is really important. And the reason it's important is because, so if you were a cripple in the society, especially as a man, uh, one, you had nothing to contribute because the main things you would contribute to society was either through agriculture and farming or through war. You can't do either if you're a cripple. But number two, it was one of the most clear indications of shame if you were a cripple. 
Okay, it's like you become a non-entity. People gasp when they see you if you're a cripple. It's like imagine the look somebody would get walking down Clarendon covered in feces. Like imagine how you would feel if you were that person with the way people distance themselves from you, the way people look at you, kind of with, like, with a look of horror. on their, They don't even know what to do with you. Okay, shame is what Mephibosheth felt. So David's saying, okay, not only are you a crippled, you have nothing to offer me, so I'm, I'm not just going to not kill you, but I'm going to bring you to my table okay, and, and bring you into my family. And that leads us to the third reason why this is nuts, what David does for Mephibosheth, is he invites him to his table. Okay, so he says in, in verse 7, and you shall eat at my table always. And so what David's saying here is, he's saying, it's not that I'm just going to like give you some resources and say, okay, you know, be on your way. But I'm going to bring you into the inner ring of my family. There's only so many seats at the table. Like you're in my family now, like the highest inner circle of the land. And I'm going to bless you in that way. And so imagine if you're Mephibosheth. I mean, somebody I once heard said, what was it? They said, every single human being is born into this world looking for somebody looking for them. Everybody is born into this world looking for someone who's looking for them. You know, does that not describe the human condition? From the day you're a baby, you want to know you're acknowledged, you want to know that you're seen, and not just seen, but cherished. You want to know that there's at least one person where if you needed it, they would run after you just to find you. And that's what Mephibosheth gets here. He goes from being on the margins of society to not just forgiven, but brought into the inner ring, the king of the land where he's seen, he's cherished. Like, I don't know anybody here who's had this kind of circumstantial reversal that Mephibosheth has in this moment. And yet this is what David does for him. It's incredible. Okay, so that, this is the love that David shows this guy, this has said, this binding, concentrated, always pursuing, faithful love. And so next let's look at... Um, like, how can we, what are some practical ways that we can love other people in the same way that David loves Mephibosheth here? And step one, how you do this, is properly placing yourself in the story. So anytime you should read a Bible story, ask, or often, you know, like one of the things you ask is, okay, like, am I supposed to identify with anybody here? And so who are you supposed to identify with in the story? And one of the ways you know you're probably identifying yourself with the wrong person in a Bible story is if you look at the hero and you go, okay, like, that's what I'm supposed to do. You know, we saw that with David and Goliath, where immediately the reaction is, okay, how am I supposed to be like David and have courage and face, my, you know, face the giants in my life, where we saw, you know, actually, we're supposed to identify with the Israelites who are cowering in fear, and we need a redeemer. So in this story, who are we supposed to identify with? Yeah. Mephibosheth. Like, when I said... A couple, a couple minutes ago, I said, I don't know anybody here who's had the type of circumstantial reversal that Mephibosheth has here. I was lying. Okay, can I do that as a pastor? Like, I was lying. It, if you know Jesus Christ, have you not had that circumstantial reversal that Mephibosheth has here? But on a far greater level, it, Romans 5, 6 through 10 is a, is a picture of, of this passage. In Romans 5, 6 through 10, Paul says, paraphrasing, he says, while we were still helpless, while we were still weak, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
And then in verse 10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, will we be saved by his life? And what Paul's saying is the wonder of the gospel is that the wonder of the gospel is it's not Jesus sees you working hard to prove how worthy you are of his love. And then he says, okay, I guess that's enough. I'll bring you into my family. The wonder of the gospel is that Jesus sees you while you are utterly helpless, while you are a spiritual cripple. There's absolutely nothing you can do to earn your salvation, nor even see your need for Jesus. Even while you're an enemy of Jesus, left to your own devices, left to my own devices, we don't want to be in Jesus' kingdom. We want to establish our own kingdom. What Jesus does in his incredible Hesed love is he pursues you. And he comes after you to, to... not just forgive you and give you pardon and say, okay, be on your way, but I want to bless you. I want to bring you into my inner ring. I want to bring you at my table where there's laughter, where there's reaching across their table, where there's friendly banter like happens in a warm and safe home. What Jesus says to you is, I've come to redeem you, not just to give you a warm blanket and security, but to bring you into my arms. Every single human being longs for somebody who's longing for them. And with Jesus Christ, that's exactly what you have. It's exactly what you have. And for Jesus, when he redeemed you, did he not do far more than David? Because David, so he brings Mephibosheth in, but David keeps his crown. David keeps his place at the table. When Jesus came for you, what did he do? He, took a, he, left a, he, took, he put aside his crown and was given instead a crown of thorns. Okay, in order to bring you into the new creation where your entire future will be nothing but leaping and dancing for joy, Jesus has made essentially into a cripple where he's unable to move on the cross, where he's not just put to death, but he's condemned for your sin and for my sin. That's who Jesus did. And so the, the point of this passage is we see Jesus like pointed to by David. And, and the point of Romans 5, 6 through 10 is if Jesus gave himself for you while you were an enemy, and he did. And if he was this compassionate toward you while you were helpless and a spiritual cripple, and he was, what in the world makes you think that he'll become cold or indifferent to you now? Because so many times, at least for Christians, like we know, okay, yes, God loved me, he saved me, he died for me. But then so much of our Christian life, just be honest, like practically speaking, as you go throughout the day, like, do you not just constantly wonder, okay, God, I, I know you love me. I'd answer that on an exam, but are you not disappointed with how I'm living today? Like, are you not raising your eyebrows at what I did last night, about what I did last weekend? But the point is, if Jesus <laughs> loved you at your worst, like, nothing can unchild you from being, come, from being a child of God, not even you. And so as your pastor, like, if you hear anything, if you hear one thing from all of my preaching, if something happens to me tomorrow, the one thing I want you to hear is to stop focusing on your performance for Jesus, on your performance for others, or even how your circumstances are doing. But I want you to focus on Jesus's has said his concentrated, binding, never ending, steadfast love for you. In fact, it's in your sin and your failure that his heart goes out to you more 
just as a parent goes out to their child as they're wandering. And that's what we get with Jesus. Amen, Titus. Yeah. So, that's the first way we love others. Is first, we have to see that we are Mephibosheth. We've been loved while we were enemies, while we were spiritual cripples. And so, now just a couple ways for how do we now love others once we see and live in the way that we've been loved this way. Because if you've been loved in this way, and you have, if you're trusting in Jesus, then does this not change you? And this is what you see with David. So notice that David says in verse 3, who can I show the kindness of God to? David knows he was saved by grace. You know, we looked at this a few weeks ago. So now he wants to extend it to somebody else. And then what's amazing about Mephibosheth's story is later on, Mephibosheth, I think it's 2 Samuel 19, he's so changed by what David does here that this guy Ziba in this text, he's a servant of Saul. Ziba tries to screw Mephibosheth over by, you know, in this land dispute. And what Mephibosheth says is he goes, I don't care that you're backstabbing me right now. You can have it all. I'm just so grateful to be at the king's table. And the point is here, it's not like David saved or Mephibosheth is extended this love and then they're like, okay, now I have to try really hard to do this. It's just a natural outflow of receiving this kind of love while they were sinners, while they were enemies of God. And so the first application is here is just, just very in very general terms, what are your instincts when somebody wrongs you, when somebody irritates you? Or even what are your instincts towards somebody who you just don't really vibe with? You just, you just don't really get them. They don't really get, what, they don't really get you. Is it to put distance between you and them? Or is it to move forward toward them and heap goodness upon them like Christ did for you and like David does here for Mephibosheth? And the more the gospel of Jesus takes root in the soil of your soul, the more it, you don't even have to think about it, it just becomes part of the instincts of who you are. It's how you tend to respond to those who, who wrong you or give you a cold shoulder. And to be clear, I feel like, especially in our moment, I always have to caveat this. You know, like when Jesus says in Matthew 5, Luke 6, love your enemies, bless those who curse you. He's not saying if somebody's sinning against you, just lay down and keep letting them sin against you. Because if somebody is harming you or sinning against you, it's unloving to them to let them keep doing that. Okay, so we do need to confront those who sin against us. But the question is, how do you do it? Because the way of our culture is if you're wronged, what you do is you respond kind for kind. But as believers, when we receive this from Jesus, when you go to address somebody who's wronged, you must never do it out of a spirit of vindictiveness, out of a spirit of just trying to um, get them back in return, but always out of trying to restore them to God, to you. Okay, so that's number one. I, I want us to continue to train our instincts and in how we respond to those who wrong us or those who irritate us. Okay, number two... Uh, there's this idea here of David bringing somebody across tribal lines. Okay, so Mephibosheth is in the line of Saul. And David brings him to eat at the same table as him. So there's a lot of people at the same table of the king. And that's a picture of the church. Okay, what our church body should look like is a group of very different people where it doesn't make any sense for us to come together and worship in the same place, be in the same community group, discipleship group, unless it's being at the king's table together. And so what I hope for us as a church, and I, I want to encourage you guys, because I think overall we're doing pretty well here, but 
moving forward, we need to continue to do as much as we can to reflect the diversity of this area. Okay, so everything from ethnicity to socioeconomic status to political differences. And not, not just verbally, but even people, letting people have voices. So it's not just like a diverse church, but where the culture is still, you know, the majority culture of this area. And something in particular I, just, I want to, as we continue in this season as your pastor, especially for all of us now, is this season has been putting more tension on a lot of churches. They're feeling it at the seams in ways they haven't in a long time because there's so many opportunities this year for our churches to become divided. So first, we're all stressed because of everything going on with COVID, right, and the instability there. You have everybody has a different opinion on how fast we should reopen, what it should look like as we do reopen. Okay, we have um, a lot of the racial injustices have come to light in our nation. And as believers, it's very clear uh, we need to care about that and uh, speak out against injustice because God himself does over and over. However, there's a lot of opinions on how that should play out in the life of a church. Okay, There's a lot of different methods of doing that individually and corporately, and there are different opinions on that. That's, that's another way that we can become divided instead of unified. And then finally, it's, a, it's an election year. All right, and so there, there's an easy way to like, bolster our sense of self-esteem by having a sense of righteousness based on I didn't vote for him or her, or I did vote for him or her. And so as a church, what has to define us primarily is we are all Mephibosheths, all enemies of God, brought to his table by sheer grace. And so we have to have the humility to work with each other across these differences moving forward as a church, okay? And then finally, number three, uh, how do we extend this kind of love to the culture around us? And, I mean, goodness, applications are far and many, but here's one I want us to focus on. So uh, there's this book written by a historian called Larry Hurtado, and the book is, it's titled something like, Why on Earth Did Anybody Become a Christian in the First Three Centuries? And he talks about how Christians were an incredibly persecuted group in the first three centuries, and yet Christianity grew. Like, there was far more persecuted than, you know, we think we're persecuted now. We're not, at least in America. And so he asked, you know, why did so many people become a Christian? And he says, you know, first and foremost, it was the power of the gospel, which is as unique then as it is now. But he said, number two, like, here's what happened. So in the first three centuries, it was a polytheistic society, and there were gods everywhere. And so if you went into somebody's home, they had the gods they worshipped. If you went into a guild, there was a god that the guild would worship. If you went into a city, there was a god that the city worshipped. And so the ethos of the culture was it, it presented itself as being very tolerant. You know, you can worship whatever god you want, but when you come into my home, you have to honor my god and bow down to my god. If you come into this guild, you have to bow down to, to our god. And so what Christians did is they said, you know, we, we can't do that because there's only one god. He's revealed himself through Jesus and you know, I will love you, I respect you, but I can't bow down to your God. And so Christians were seen as dangerous, they were seen as bigoted, they were seen as uh, dangerous for the social order, uh, because so much of the fabric of society was based on everybody bowing down to each other's gods. But what the early Christians did is they said, okay, we may not agree with your beliefs and practices, but we will be your best neighbors, we will love you, and whenever you need help, we will be there. And they were. And it was through their lives, loving their enemies, even as they were mistreated by them, that attracted so many people to the gospel. And we're in not so much of a different situation today. Okay, but today, it's not so much you need to honor uh, all, all of our gods, 
but it's you need to honor all identities is where at least America is at. Okay, and so what our culture says is the way you know who you are at your center is you look within whatever your strongest feelings are. That's who you are. And so your identity is like being true to yourself. And so this is one reason why, you know, if, if, if who you are is your feelings, like at the essence, that's who you are. And then somebody disagrees with you, it's seen as, it's seen as more than just disagreeing with you, but it's an attack on your essence. And so as Christians, right, we say... <laughs> The way you know who you are is not by being true to yourself, but it's looking at the one who has always been true to you and giving your life to him, and that's who you know who you are. This is what Jesus preached all the time. Whoever will find himself will lose himself for my sake in the gospel. And that message is, to many, it's very offensive. And it's seen as, like, what's going to happen to our social order if you have a bunch of Christians with that approach to identity formation? But for us as believers, okay, what I want for us and for, for all Christians in our nation is to say the same thing the early Christians did. To say, okay, I don't, well, I don't agree with all of your beliefs and practices. I will be your best neighbor. I will be your best coworker. I will love you. And I will be there for you no matter what. Because even while I was an enemy, Jesus Christ reached into my life to bring me into his table. Okay, and so we're hospitable. We have all sorts of people into our homes to eat with them, to care for them when they're hurting. And because the gospel is the power of God to salvation for all who will believe, as we back up that message with our lives, loving our enemies, not responding kind for kind okay, when people insult us, but loving them, I think we'll see a lot more people also uh, see the same God who loved us first. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, Lord, you are amazing. Thank you for loving us while we did not love you, while we did not see our need for you. Thank you for doing more than just pardoning our sins, but bringing us into table fellowship with you and deep intimacy. So first and foremost, help us all as a church to live in light of the gospel by not being able to get over how much you continue to love us, like us, pray for us, persevere us, and then in, in turn, love others even when they mistreat us as you first loved us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.